haven't thought about flying for a long time. I have a dream that at moment when I was alone above the clouds for a long time. I have dreamed waking up in a room surrounded in blue and green grass for more years than I could dream of memory. I haven't walked back into the past or scratched on the doors of my origins where it all came from since I held up that cape for the last time. Return to Kent Town 10th year anniversary edition is a revised version of Ambien's first poetry book. The book can be purchased from Amazon and it contains numerous additional material. Spoken Label Hi, it's Andien from Spoken Label. Thank you today for streaming or downloading another episode of Spoken Label. Spoken Label was originally set up on beginning of the 2016 and as of speaking has currently nearly 300 sessions. The full archive is available on Spoken Label full stop bandcamp.com although it is available for free for stream and download if you wish I am always grateful for any sort of kind of donation to enable me to keep the running costs of this podcast going and enjoy take care bye bye Spoken Label Hi guys Andy N Spoken Label back in the house on a Wednesday evening yes it has been a bit of an adventure today because people who know from previous podcasts we've gone the last few days there's been some issues with N Towers' laptop i.e. it's been naughty but anyway We've managed to get online tonight. It's a little bit later than I planned, but I've got a wonderful writer with me today who's currently from Los Angeles and we'll come into her background more in a moment who's got in touch with me over matchmaker.fm over her poetry collection she's just bought out, which is a staggering book. It really, really is this one. I've got the lady, a lady called Andrea Carter-Brown with me. So, Andrea, obviously, for people who don't know you, first of all, would you like to tell people a little bit about yourself? Obviously, where you live now, and where you come from, and we'll start from there. Okay. Um, I live now in Los Angeles, in the Hollywood part of Los Angeles. I moved here in 2004. Um, I spent most of, I was born in New Jersey, in Patterson, which is, if you know poet, the American poet William Carlos Williams, it's where he practiced medicine and wrote his collections of poetry one of which is called patterson i was wondering uh, if that was the case yeah because i'm a big fan uh, of big as fan an of adult i moved to new york city as quickly as i could it's where i always wanted to live and um i finished college there um and i basically lived there on and off but basically there until 2004. brilliant that's fine great because i know obviously you as a writer, obviously, I know you've had a, a couple of collections published, and but, um, I want to talk about obviously before we go into your collections themselves. I know your first collection came out just a couple of years after you moved to New York, to New York City. But where did all your writing originally come from? Well, it I always loved to read from early childhood, and as a teenager, I started reading poetry and voraciously um but i was too intimidated by it to write um and but in college i studied it i studied french poetry um 
which is what took me to Paris for my master's degree. Um, but I never wanted to teach French or teach, period. My father was a teacher and I swore I would never be a teacher. Um, so when I had to find a job, I ended up in a business career. And I was an accountant for about 15 years working for small businesses in New York City. Um, and one day I decided to, I was so unhappy. I felt like the me that had studied literature, that had loved writing, that had been too frightened to try to write was getting lost. And I was very unhappy with the world that I was living in. And so I cold turkey quit my business job and I started writing. Uh, wow. And that wow. was, I was, I was 32 when that happened. Um, and of course it wasn't exactly easy. <laughs> oh no. Oh and no, so, it won't be easy. <laughs> and so it was another, uh, almost 10 years before I started getting published. I studied, I sort of apprenticed with a series of, I took master classes and workshops with a series of poets that, whose work I admired in New York City. Yeah, I'm always a believer with writing, and I, think, yeah, I suspect you would agree with me on this. You can't expect to be writing brilliant stuff immediately. I think it takes time, doesn't it? You have to get the rubbish out of your system before you get into the good stuff, I always believe. Yeah, you're, I entirely agree, but there's always the fantasy that, in fact, you're not going to have to do that. That's true. That's <laughs> and true. if you come to something later in life, which is creative, there will always be people telling you, well, if you're over 25, forget it. You know, it's all downhill after that. Uh, writing is something that you can do your entire life. And at every phase of your life, you have something different to offer and some, something different to say, and you can keep growing yourself. So, um, I'm, you know, I'm a pretty stubborn person. There are many times I could have given up. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, and, you know, you can get, you can go down the rabbit hole of jealousy of people who were more successful, who get published easily, who get a lot of attention. Um, but that's, that's not good for the writing either. I mean, that's not a good place to be writing from. So, um, but I'm happiest when I'm writing. And once I figured that out, I sort of rearranged my life in order to maximize that. <laughs> And, yeah, no, and I think the work is better when I'm happy, even if I'm writing difficult things. Um, uh, when I'm not writing, my husband always knows that I'm not writing. I cannot <laughs> fool him. First of all, I get crabby. <laughs> oh, I could name someone to name someone like that. I'm not going to name them. <laughs> this bit might get edited out. <laughs> Anyway, um, so uh, I feel like I'm in a good place now. Um, and I want to get to a better place all the time. No, understandable. Now, like I said before, I haven't actually read your, your, your first full-length collection or your two chapbooks. 
But I think we do need to highlight them, obviously, briefly before we go into what, what we're here today, today, okay. today to talk about. Now, obviously, um, your first collection was the Dishevel Bed, published yeah. by Cavan, okay, I get this right now, Cavan Kerry Press. Yes. Now, to back in 2006. So that's, yeah. um, obviously, you moved to New York in 2004 then. So did this first collection come together quite quickly then, did it? Okay, now I need to actually uh, correct something. Maybe I wasn't um, clear. I lived in New York State, uh, New York City until 2004 and right, moved apologies. to Los Angeles in 2004. Sorry, so, that you buy, you buy, I was confused. Really yeah. That's fine. Yeah. So tell us about this first collection and did it come together no, quite it, quickly? No, it didn't did it? come together quickly. The disheveled bed. The first one never was. No. Oh. Um, it's it's a thematically linked collection. Um, it has a lot of poems about infertility in it, which um, no one was writing about at the time I started writing about it. So it felt like, okay, this is material which can be made into poetry and which a lot of people need to hear about from the inside out. Um, and, and then that's the first half of that book. And the second half of the book is about rebuilding one's life, having accepted that one is not going to have children. Yeah, no, I understand, I understand. Um, yeah, and those poems to took about, well, that book was published in 2005, I think. And it was accepted in 2004 or three. And it probably represents 10 years of work. Wow, yeah. No, I can, I can believe you on that. I've got a book at the moment, or well, my next book up to the time it's done, it'll probably take me six or seven years to finish, so I know what you mean. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. Now, yeah. I know you've had two chapbooks published as well. Looks like one of them was 2001, uh, yep. Brook and Rainbow. Yep. And I think I've got this right, but the Sour's Ear Poetry Review. Yep. And then you had a chapbook as well, having your Domestic Karma. Which is a good title. Finishing Line Press in 2018. Um, tell us briefly about both those chapbooks as well, then, before we carry okay. on. Okay. I like chapbooks as a size collection. Hmm. Um, um, it's a way to take a thematic group of poems and uh, get it out there together. The poems may end up in different collect long collections later. Um, but the first one, Brook and Rainbow, uh, I had been writing then for about poetry for about 10 years. And I was just, I had been published in journals and I had done a fair amount of reading and I was discouraged because I didn't have a book yet. And so I picked my best, what I thought were my best poems. And I hunted for a press that liked the kind of work I was doing. And Sow's Ear came up. I didn't know them. I sent them the book. It was accepted the first time I sent it out. Boy, did that spoil me. <laughs> Grand applause and media. That's, that's, that's some going. That's and, some going. <laughs> yeah, and the, the editor did a fantastic job with it physically. Uh, Larry Richmond, his name is, and or he's retired now, but he really went the extra nine yards to just make it physically fantastic. And, but coincidentally, my shipment of those books arrived in my apartment um, a few weeks before 9-11. Oh, wow. 
Oh, wow. So I never really took that book out into the world, that chapbook, the way it should have been. Yeah, no, I can, I can, what we're obviously, people are wondering today, we better, better lead into it, I think. Because okay. obviously, your book, obviously, we're saying talk about September the 12th, is about 9-11. Because obviously, from reading what you, to what I see in the book, you obviously went through hell, basically, with that. And I remember that day, because I was just left university, because my university was actually at Bolton, oddly enough, where we were talking oh, about. Oh, no wonder you know Bolton, yes. Yes, that's why I know Bolton really well. But, um, I was working, I remember it, and this why I can relate to what you wanted to talk about this, because I came home from work, because I was only working part-time at the time, after uni, and walked in where I'm living with mum and dad, and my mum was in flood of tears, and we both saw the second tower got blow, get literally took out. It was just... Oh. And we were thousands of miles away to come believe what we were seeing. And obviously, your book is obviously about you, your story with this. So to, I don't know where to really begin about this, but perhaps <laughs> it's because it's such a, diff, you know I mean? it's a difficult topic. But obviously, what made you want to write the book, then, first of all? And we'll try it that way. Well, I need to back up and say something in response to what you said. A couple oh, yeah, things. please. One please. is that. Number one, I did go through some horrible stuff and for a long time afterwards, but I'm alive and I need to keep, you know, that to me is the focus. Um, uh, the reason I wanted to write the book is that my experiences that day and during um what I call the immediate aftermath and the long-term aftermath have not really been written about. First of all, I experienced the event initially from a block away from my apartment and um, I fled. And so it was an inc incredible adventure, putting a positive word on it. Fleeing, um, I that day I covered about a hundred miles until I was reunited 12 hours later with my husband in up in Westchester, which is the county north of New York City. And it was just an accident that he was up there. Um, but at least we were reunited that day. Other people took longer. Um, then our apartment was completely contaminated by stuff that got into it from the towers collapsing. So we had to deal with the loss of our home and finding a new place to live while that was being done. Then because of exposure to the dust that morning, I developed severe asthma and was banned from going back there for a long time. So our return, we eventually went back to that apartment which a lot of people who lived in the building where we lived in nearby didn't, they just abandoned everything they owned and moved away. That didn't seem, we didn't want to do that. So we sort of toughed it out and we toughed it out until we decided that no, it wasn't going to get better. No, we were not going to be able to have a reasonable life that wasn't all about um, the cleanup and the rebuilding and the memories and the ghosts and the the health issues. And that was when we moved three years later or two and a half years later to 
Los Angeles. Right, getting on with it. Yeah, it's nice said to you, everybody. Um, I don't always say I'm very predicty. You know, I will from praise book to death, and I will in this case because this is a tremendous book. And it's certainly when I was going through it, and I know obviously we were talking off mic before that. Well, I know Walt Whitman was obviously a massive influence in your work, and there's several parts and some of the later poems in it that you actually put. I think you do mention Whitman in it, and I can see it in this book. I can immediately. Now, the book itself, obviously, is split into five sections. What made you want to split it into five sections? It wasn't originally in five sections. You know, the, the genesis of this collection, it took me 18 years to write it. Oh, my God. I would say about 10 years to write the poems but meanwhile, I was assembling it and trying to find the right form. One of the one of the issues I struggled with is that the material, even to me, but I think to, to readers, is so difficult that there's reader fatigue pretty quickly. Um, so when it was a single. Uh, long poem with a lot of parts, but basically no sections. I was already struggling with how to break it down into manageable chunks so that people could take breaks, sort of like a chapters in a novel. Yes. Um, and um, eventually, uh, then then I realized that you can't, in some ways, this is a love poem for a life that was lost, not literally, but metaphorically, on 9-11. It's about uh, the difficulty of experiencing it and recovering from it. But the backstory to all of that is that what was taken away for me was my neighborhood all of my routines, many people that I knew. Um, and we loved, we had been living in this apartment, which was, we had a view of the Hudson River. I could see the World Trade Center from our, from our living room window and our bedroom window. Um, it was in New York City, it was a fantastic place to live. Um, it was, we saw the tides coming and going, the birds migrated through, the monarch butterflies migrated through, there were a lot of trees, there was even some grass, there were boats coming and going. I was just fascinated, I was, had always been fascinated by that sort of river traffic, which is, you know, the economic and personal life of the city. And the history of the city is so much about the water and trade okay. and immigration and um so uh well at one point i realized that i was writing a love poem but i hadn't written about what i loved so the first section of the book are poems about that life yeah i got that i got that straight away with it and then i realized that the book would not be originally the book was going to end at the end of the what's now the fourth section. But
but I realized that I didn't want it to end with um, the struggle to recover. I wanted to portray the kind of tentative recovery of my new life in California. And that's what the last section is. So, um, and the middle section is a portrait of the town where I grew up, which um, in the first few months after 9-11, um, co completely by accident, I learned that 11 people from this very small suburban town in New Jersey called Glenrock had died that morning. Ooh. It was a town which even when I grew up there funneled its workers into the Wall Street area because that's where the train routes went. You know, you live on the on the commuter route that's going to take you to where you're working. So the vast majority of people who worked who lived in that town worked in downtown Manhattan uh, near Wall Street or in the World Trade Center. And um, but it's a small enough town that you really would have known any everyone directly or indirectly. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I decided when I when I realized that the town that I knew so well had suffered this body blow of loss that day, it was one of the highest victim counts of the surrounding area. Um, of course, New York City had the highest, but of the suburban towns that kind of circled the city, Glenrock was in the top 10. Um, and um, I decided that that sense of loss just took me out of my own experience and sort of deepened um, my grief. And yeah, yeah. So I, I decided to make that the centerpiece of the book yeah, in its own that. little section so that so that it's it just once I it seemed to sort of make a, a sandwich of before that day, Glenrock, the aftermath, the life after it just seemed natural. Yeah, no, it flowed, flowed definitely with that. I particularly liked in it that third part when you did like um, each of the pieces were about people. I've, I think they were all, yeah, all about the various, of the, all the victims themselves. And then I, I found it quite interesting at the end of it when you did, you went for little poems about each of the victims, but then you went to the, the poem called The 11th Victim. What made you want to do it that way at the end of that section? Well... The, tenth, the first 10 victims lived in the town when they died. And the 11th victim had graduated from high school and moved to New York City to work in Wall Street. Right, but right. when I went, the town has a quite eloquent little memorial in a park near the train station. And his name was engraved in the bench with the 10 other names. Um, and I realized that 
his family was still living there and he still identified that town as his home. So, and he got me thinking about how many of us think of the town, if we had a town where we grew up or an area in a city, we think of that as our home for a long time into adult life. You do, definitely. Some of us never leave it, um, lose that. And, and there's a connection to that place, which even when you've built the life somewhere else and you think of yourself as, for example, I think of myself as an Angelino now. I've now lived here for 17 years. I know my way around. This is my frame of reference. Yeah. Um, but in some ways, Glenrock will always be my hometown. Yeah, and I no, wanted to okay. write about all of us who feel connected through our paths, through our pasts, permanently to a place. Yeah, no, I can see the book is. It's, the book is on life. And it's like, when I'm reading it, the emotions that are in it, it's, it said to me straight away, he said, it took you 10 years to write this. I felt it to me as you went along. It's a lot of work gone into this book. How did it compare then to your first full-length book? I know it was done. The first full-length book was done a long time ago. Uh, I felt in this in the second full-length book, September twelfth. I felt an obligation to do right by this material. Yeah, no, no I, I felt uh, it wasn't simply uh, a book about my experiences around a certain subject, but I wanted it to uh, initially I wanted it to add to the historical record and there isn't anything in it which is made up, which I probably shouldn't say given that it's poetry, but, <laughs> no, I, but I will because that was a challenge, you know, as you, um, when you're in the time of an event, uh, what you learn about that event afterwards uh, creeps into your contemporary narrative. So I worked very hard to keep that out so that in the, in the part of the book where I'm describing my experiences that day, I'm not adding anything of what I learned about that later. Um, so it would be a record and um and my experience of that day i didn't see the tele the iconic television views of the planes going into the north tower and the south tower or the views of the towers collapsing from north looking south the, i didn't see that at all until much later what i saw was what was happening close up and then from Staten Island, which is where I sort of by accident ended up. Um, so I wanted, I, I, I do believe in writing that um, honesty is important and that's very hard. <laughs> Yeah, um, no, no, of course, of course. And I believe in the significance of details. You might not know what the significance is when you take them in, but preserving the particularity of memory is 
is really what you have as a writer yeah, as no, well as your imagination so um anyway i um uh, this book at one point was twice as long as it is now wow and that that having dealing with that i mean a, a poetry press is not going to take a book which is that long unless it's a, a selected and you're you're not going to get a selected unless you already have like five or six other books exactly, so, exactly. and i wasn't there so um and but i to get all of those details in i needed 175 or 200 pages so that's the book that i wrote originally and then what was published is an amazing compression <laughs> of, yeah. of yeah. what said, was in there. Wow. So anyway. That would have been in the to be honest with you. My second book, I remember my second book came out two thousand eleven, eleven years ago. Uh, mine would that was mine was 120 pages. And I'd like it was a nightmare trying to cut it down to the sixty-four pages it was down to. So yours is like twice as long as that. And I don't want to... Yes, and and I was lucky. I mean, the press taking the book on believed in the book, and they found the money to add more pages. Uh, but they would not have published it at much longer than it is now. You know. Yeah. No, of course, of course. So, Do you envisage any of these? other poems that are in this book coming out anywhere or in the future? Yes, in fact, this, the book that I've recently finished since this one is... Oh, by the way, uh, people wondering now, I don't, this is what I'm <laughs> going to ask Andrea now. What's your, what plans has she got next? So we'll leave into that. Second well, there was a natural brilliant. segue there for you to ask about the stuff, that, the stuff that ended on the cutting room floor. Well, a lot of it won't get published, but... Um, I, I started writing about uh, my father's experience as a World War II soldier in Europe. He was in France and Germany, and he was in the Battle of the Bulge, but he was one of those soldiers who would never talk about it. So I well, after he died, I came across his uniforms and his papers, and um, I got curious. I wanted to know what he had experienced. Um, my husband is Jewish and had always asked him what he saw of, of the camps when he went into Germany in 1945, and he would not talk about it. So this became, I thought, okay, I'm so tired of writing about September 12th. <laughs> what, can I, what else can I write about completely different? So I started doing research and writing about my father and um, who was the, the, the descendant of German immigrants to this country in the mid 19th century. You know, there were waves and waves of German immigrants. Um, and he absolutely hated his German um, uh, patrimony so thoroughly that he forgot, he forgot that Brown, my last name, was originally B-R-A-U-N. And he told me and my sister and everyone who ever asked that it came from a Scots ancestor. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. And he, even, even when we found the piece of paper, which is, was the baptismal certificate of the first Brown 
born in this country. And on that certificate, it was B-R-A-U-N. And on his tombstone, it's B-R-O-W-N. My father refused to accept that he had German ancestors. He was ashamed of them. He hated everything about that. And so I thought to myself, well, this is an interesting um, immigrant story and an interesting story of assimilation. And where is the intersection of his experience with um, Nazi anti-Semitism, intolerance today? Um, And so I started writing about that. I mean, lighthearted, right? But anyway. Comedy, comedy (laughs) of the year, definitely. (laughs) But it was actually, it was more fun to write than these poems, I have to tell you, because it was at a remove. It wasn't my story, it was his story. That's what I was thinking then, like, it's, I think you often find as a poet, and this definitely applies to you here, is that because you can take a step backwards, it's not as uncomfortable, and that's what I think probably happened to you then, the next book, didn't it? It did happen until I realized that my experience as a survivor of 9-11 and what everything that's happened in the world since 9-11 is in some ways informed by my father's experience in World yeah. War II. No, I agree. I agree. Because my father fought in the Korean War, we did, in the late, in the mid-50s. Uh-huh. He did. My dad, yeah, uh-huh. my dad, my dad's 87 now, 86, he won't talk about it. Refuses point blank or long talk about that. He said it was. He said he didn't fight in the fight in the Second World War, but one of his brothers did, and his brother told him horrible stories. And he said it was just as bad when he fought in the Korean War. Wow. Well, I think I'm sure that was the case for my father because he was a medic, and so moving through with the front, oh, God. I can't. I can only imagine the kinds of things that he lived with. But, uh, and in fact, one of his work uniforms has all kinds of stains on it. It's clean and he kept it, but has all kinds of stains on it. I can't begin to imagine what those stains, stains are. Yeah, you wouldn't want to know sometimes by philosophy, yeah. But the other thing that I felt growing up was that his life wasn't as interesting after the war. I mean, he had a job, he was a teacher, he, got, he had two children. He became a grandfather. He had a lot of activities that he was good at and cared about. But I always, he kept all of his stuff. He kept his duffel bag. He kept his hats. He kept his, um, uh, the army blanket with his numbers on it is what we laid on at the beach when we went for vacation every summer. We were sort of live, oh, and he used his army boots until he died for work, for housework. So there were these reminders around that he held on to that I feel like it was a time of intensity, World War II for him, intensity of friendships that never ended. He stayed in touch with his buddies and they scattered all over the country. Um, He, and I felt like his, he felt, he would never admit it, just the same as he would never talk about the war, but that he felt that his life after the war just wasn't as 
compelling, as important that, and I wanted, I wanted to explore that. So to, to come back to what got us started, I realized that some of the later aftermath poems bring him in. So for example, when I was doing research in France, um, I thought I wrote about visiting his grave um, when I was in France. I wrote about his about um, the bombing, the mis the erroneous bombing of civilians in Biarritz by Yankee bombers stationed in Britain and the legacy of that. And so I knew that my father was there shortly after that. And I interviewed the historian at the local historical society. And I got a flavor for what that sort of weird tension between Victor and conquered people, which is yeah, something no, that. No, I understand um, completely. Yeah. It sounds like it's been, I think. As a writer, I always believe every, every book you do is a reaction to the previous book. And this sounds like to me, it really was a reaction to your last book as your second book reaction to your first book, really, wasn't it? Exactly. And no one's ever said that before, but it's something that you live with. If you're a writer, it's organic. One book grows out of the one yeah, the it has before. to. I think yeah. it has to because if you don't, you go. You end up going around in circles, and that's never. I think that's ever healthy or productive for a writer. No, good luck with this this fourth point book. Definitely. Do you know when this book's going to be out yet, or is that to be negotiated? Mm, I think it'll be out in two or three years, which is well, fairly soon. We'll get we'll get you back on here again then, definitely, Andrew. When that one's out, I love to. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that again, definitely. If so. you're still doing this, yeah, oh, don't worry about brand, that. yeah. I can always so. admit, and I'll this is I'll, I'll, I'll do a little story about Amanda here to conclude on, definitely. But when I first started seeing Amanda, well, because we're married, we're married now, and when I first started seeing her beginning the 2007 and the 2016, actually, it was she thought at the time I'd run out of writers to talk to after another year or two. Six years into it, no sign <laughs> of that yet. <laughs> Hooray. Anyway, <laughs> to conclude, obviously, seriously, if people want to find out more about you, where are the best going? Well, the, there's quite a bit of information on my website, which is andreacarterbrown.com. Um, there's even on, there's a page devoted to September 12th, which has not only an essay about the sort of genesis of the book, but it has a show and tell section with pictures of things that I've held on to from that time with notes about it. And then I included a, um, a bibliography because I drew on a lot of sources. I love to do research for my books and it's, it's a limited bi bibliography because, you know, you could put tomes of books about it, but, and it includes poetry books that inspired me or spoke to me. Um, and then, you know, I'm on Facebook, Andrew Carter Brown. I'm on Twitter at Andrew Brown Poet. 
I'm on Instagram at Andrea Brown Poet. So people can find me. Easy to find you, definitely with that one. So, and your book, of course, can be picked up from all you, all the, as I would say, good and evil news at a new day. <laughs> yes, yeah, sadly, sadly, they're not they're, all good. You can track them on yourself. I, mean, I know I've had a quick look around, and your books come up in quite a lot of places. So it's easy to find them. So, good. Thank you. Good. Well, thank you for today, Andrea. I know we're going to take a quick break now, and then you're going to read out a few poses in the second half. This okay. question was tremendous. So. Hang around, everybody. Spoken. Hi, guys. Yes, I'm still here with Andrea. She's going to do a selection of poems with a new, uh, new book now. Over to you, Andrea. Thanks, Andy. As we were talking about before, this book has, September 12th, has five sections. And I'm going to read a poem from each section. Um, the first section um, are basically love poems for the life that I had in New York City before 9-11. And each of them is um, inspired by an artist I love. The poem that I'm gonna read is an homage to the French artist Du Buffet, and it refers to his cutouts, of which there's a famous one right near Wall Street in downtown Manhattan. And the title of this poem is Vertigo. I've chosen it because it's a winter poem and I know things in Britain this winter have been very white and cold. That's true. And <laughs> so this is a winter poem, Vertigo. After the blizzard, rotten ice flows flow toward the ocean, sluggish close to shore, swifter near the river center. From left to right, the tide rolls in and up against the current, Looking down, our stomachs churn as if the entire island of Manhattan on which we stand had turned into a giant ocean liner plowing through winter to find the Northwest Passage. Vertigo must be this not knowing whether you were coming or going. Long before the ice ages, ice ages Long before any continents we know existed, magma bubbled up out of the Earth's hot heart here, cooling into crystalline rock, which intense heat and pressure hardened into schist, able to support the skyscrapers we so love. We pack the perfect big wet crystals, pelt the ghostly shapes that pass, the frozen over river breaking up as it thaws. The snowballs sail forth from our hands, explode on contact, sink into slush. This is a better way than most to get through the day when your life is about to change and you don't know how or how much. Fantastic, great ending there. It's um people necessarily know us, but we were half talking before before we started recording today, Andrew and me. That um it's, it's you wanted you wanted to know I didn't have any poems you particularly wanted me to, you wanted to want to meet you to read for me. This was actually one of them, but I didn't want to tell you. That. <laughs> I was hoping fantastic. I was hoping I don't like to be honest with you, I don't like encouraging people. I want to be natural, but I remember reading this poem over the last couple of days, and I loved the ending of it. That's why. 
it really like give a real sense of forbidding doom almost if that's the right with the last line and it moves the narrative on brilliantly. That was a great choice. <laughs> Let's great. see if you can surprise me now on the second the next part. Well, this 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 you know I frequently read um, the first few sections of the long title prose poem September twelfth, which conveys what I saw from my apartment that morning and what happened when I fled. But I'm going to, I think, surprise you cool. and like jump to the end of this section with um, what happened when we went back to our apartment for the first time five days later. We did it under armed National Guard escort. We were allowed 10 minutes in the apartment to retrieve passports, medicines. I got my laptop then thank god it wasn't destroyed because it wasn't backed up somewhere else <laughs> I, I wasn't going to ask you that, on that one. What? yeah yeah but i want to read uh the last three um sections of the prose poem um and it's it jumps into our return to, into the building that first time, Saturday, September 15th. Flashlights on, dusk masks positioned over nose and mouth. We walk through the lobby, up five flights of stairs and down dark hallways reeking of spoiled food. Inside the apartment, dirty white dust covers everything. The dust contains ashes of the thousands who vanished four mornings ago. We know this without being told. The dead now lie in our home, now cover every surface. They coat silverware, the runners on which drawers open and close. They sleep in book bindings. They seep between pages and underneath volumes packed tight on shelves. They find corners of closets where we haven't looked in years. Yes, the dead are with us, will always be with us. Our home has become theirs. We hesitate to disturb their final resting place. Leave them in peace, if there can be any. As for the living, I long to simply walk away, take nothing, and never come back. Seated on a park bench in Westchester at dusk, September 12th, the night after the disaster, you asked to hear the story of how you came back to me. It's my new favorite story. Quietly, my voice almost a whisper, I tell you once again, everything I can remember. Filling in the blanks that have come back since the last time I told you, that come back to me now as I speak, just the two of us in the world, only the two of us in this world. In the world of this story, 
There are two of us still living, and 10,000, we thought then, vanished in the rubble that burns near our home. How do we live with that knowledge? Night falls as we look out over the harbor, listening to the slap of water on sand and prow, the creak of rigging in cleats. We have washed up on this improbable suburban shore, alive, but beached, completely at sea in this new world, this next life for which we have been spared, if unprepared. Mamaronek enfolds us like a dream, a solitary night heron brays like a hound patrolling the nearby shoreline. We rest exhausted in its spell. Too soon, it will be time to leave. Haunting, really, really haunting, but powerfully written there, Andrew. Incredible stuff. Thank you. So the third, the third and middle section of the book is a portrait of the town where I grew up, which was a small commuter town, about 15 miles as the crow flies from New York City. And um, this is a poem about that town, which introduces the um, portraits about portraits of the 11 people who died that morning. And this poem is an homage to Whitman. The town I, I just want to remind you was called Glen Rock, New Jersey. The rock in the Glen. Picture a pretty town, peaceful, stately trees lining its streets, children walking to school weekday mornings. Picture cars, bikes, and pedestrians converging on the two train stations at the same time, the hurried goodbyes. Picture a quietness after the commuters leave, the pretty town like Sleeping Beauty waiting to be kissed awake when they return. Picture the spill of play, parties and gossip across yards without hedges or fences. Picture a breeze rustling the oaks and maples, spreading the news the morning of September 11. Picture a pretty town brought to its knees. That is a really clever piece, that, because first, I can see this, the Whitman influence on that immediately, but I do like the use of the last line there, because if people can see the poem yourself, you're all the piece, all the lines run, run over, over each other in this piece to do where it's continuous, like a twig train of thought, but that last line is last line, and it's deliberate to raise the point. That's clever writing. You are the first person who's noticed that, and I am so thrilled. <laughs> Thank you. Takes a I'm poet astute. to I'm see that. I'm very stupid poetry. People can tell that's me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you would have to be to notice that, but yeah. And now I'm going to read a poem 
from a sort of extended aftermath section, which begins the night of September 11th. And, um, well, it ends, hmm, well, it ends in the distant future. <laughs> um, let me just check with you. I was considering reading The Old Neighborhood from this section. How about if I read Pinstripe Bullies? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Pinstriped Bullies. I want to introduce this by saying it's what I call a concrete poem. It's two skinny columns with a space between them running down the page. I love to play with white space. does make sense to mention that. Yes. I would have mentioned at the end of the poem. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That's fine. And I'll try to read it so that you can hear that gap between each short line. Pinstriped bullies, some of us hated you. So tall, too skinny to be true. You swayed in wind-paired pendulums, making us seasick. Alternating vertical stripes, white, black, hurt your eyes marble, dark glass, echoed whatever weather was moving through. We gazed up next aching. You ended at sky until you collapsed in a cloud that rivered the blue before falling into the ocean to live in your shadow was to feel infinitesimal. Oh, that last word is beautiful. That last word is a bit unexpected. <laughs> no, it's, it's great. It's a really challenging piece, that, because it's it's not a piece I could write, that's for sure of it. So, <laughs> did, did you find that, was that quite a tricky poem to write? Were you doing it in two columns? Well, it forces you to strip away everything which is non-essential i will tell you that this is the newest poem in the entire collection we were going to press about a year ago last fall and i was looking at the collection and i felt that that this subject matter was missing what it was like to live so close to these buildings and um, there were, there's a very famous poem by David Lehman um, after the towers came down about how people came to love the towers. Architecturally, they didn't like them initially, New Yorkers, but then we lived with them for decades and they became part of our, our lives. But me, I never was reconciled to them. And I wanted to explore in this poem what that was about. And when I got to the end of it and I wrote that line, I finally understood the source of my unease. Yeah, yeah. I think sometimes it's the last minute additions like that can really add something to your collection that you hadn't realized before. No, it's a great, fantastic piece. Okay, we're on to part five now, aren't we? For, as I always say, 
the big conclusion, but I don't I don't think it's appropriate here. <laughs> no, I don't think it's def it's deliberately not a big conclusion. <laughs> because I don't think first of all, I don't feel that about the event, as we talked about. It's rippling forward through all of our lives in ways I don't think we understood at the time and in my life in particular. So this is a sort of patchwork of poems about what I would say life goes on. Um, is there a poem here that you... I really like liked, to... I must admit to you, High Noon in Hollywood, actually. Thank you. Wow. Um, I, I enjoyed, I've enjoyed the full book, but it's, um, I've, I do like him poems about Hollywood, even though this is a bit of a different take on it. Well, it is a different take, but it's an important part of um, what my new life has been about with echoes of the old life. Um, thank you. I haven't read this one yet, so I'll do my Ooh, best. I mean, I, when I'm writing, I read to myself out loud all the time, um, but it's a little different when you're reading for someone else. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. And um, there may be some uh, birds mentioned in here. No, I don't think there's anything that even a, a, a birder in, in, your neck of the woods wouldn't know what they are. They're pretty common. High noon in Hollywood. Hidden by the lush leaves of the rubber tree, a cooper's hawk eyes our neighbor's chickens, fallen uncharacteristically silent. On his other side, a bewick's wren, small as a hen's egg, darts, flits easily in the interstices between branches, comes within a foot of the hawk, taunting him with shrill, constantly repeated calls. It's enough to drive me crazy, but not the hawk. Occasionally, it moves one claw, then the other, shifting ever so slightly. From the hide of our bedroom window, I watch and listen for over an hour, observed, ignored, too big to eat. The wren keeps up its racket until the hawk gives up, lifts his body elegantly through the dense canopy. The chickens gurgling resume laying while the wren retreats to the safety of the morning glory tangle, only to emerge again at dusk to make one last survey of the backyard looking for bugs.